This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Leslie Waters, and my guest today is Jeff Feidlinger, author of the new book, In the Midst of Civilized Europe, The Pogroms of 1918 to 1921 and the Onset of the Holocaust, published in 2021 by Metropolitan Books, out soon, release date October 26th. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks. Nice to be here. So let me tell you a little about our author today. Jeffrey Weidlinger is Joseph Brodsky Collegiate Professor of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. He's author of the award-winning books In the Shadow of the Shtetl, Small Town Jewish Life in Soviet Ukraine, The Moscow State Yiddish Theater, Jewish Culture on the Soviet Stage, and Jewish Public Culture in the Late Russian Empire. He's the chair of the Academic Advisory Council of the Center for Jewish History, a member of the Executive Committee of the American Academy for Jewish Research, and a member of the Academic Committee of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and a former vice president of the Association for Jewish Studies. So, Jeff, I'd like to start by asking you how you got interested in the topic of World War I-era pogroms in Ukraine. Um, Yeah, thanks for asking. I had been working uh, in a project for about 10 years uh, called AHAME, which was an acronym we made up uh, for the Archives of Historical and Ethnographic Yiddish Memories. And that was led by my colleague Dovber Kerler, who is a Yiddish linguist. And we were going through Ukraine uh, looking for elderly Yiddish speakers and interviewing them in order to trace the differences in the language and the uh, and the various dialects of uh, Ukrainian Yiddish. And part of those interviews were a segment where we would just ask the people to talk about their lives and to tell us the story of their lives. And these were, you know, remarkable stories that we were hearing. Um, and the oldest people that we interviewed were born right on the eve of the revolution. And so mm-hmm. they told us about their earliest memories Uh, of the revolution, and they told us about their memories of pogroms that took place during the revolution. Uh, They would then talk about the rest of their lives and then link it in their narratives with what they called the pogroms of the Holocaust. And it's then that I became aware of the connection between those those two events. I mean, we interviewed one person who was born in 1917, and rolled up his sleeve at one point to show us a scar on his arm that was where the bullet that killed his mother had ricocheted uh, off his arm uh, while she was holding him 
in a mass grave. Wow. And that's, you know, a story that sounded like a Holocaust story, but in fact, it's taken place in 1919 during these pogroms. So I just became more aware than I had been before uh, of the extent to which this ethnic violence uh, influenced the lives of the people who lived through them. Yeah, so you begin your book actually making this exact connection with a discussion of the memorial book from the town of Proskoriv. So could you tell our listeners what memorial books are and what's notable about that one in particular? Yeah, so memorial books is a term that's generally used to refer to books that were compiled by survivors of the Holocaust or by people from destroyed towns of the Holocaust in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And they began really as early as the late 1940s, where people who had survived or people who had left even before the war um, and were now living in the United States, in Argentina, in uh, Israel, or wherever it may be, uh, were getting together and putting stories about the town to try to tell the story of their town that had been destroyed by the war. And these were stories about, you know, simple things that happened. They would tell stories about a favorite teacher in the town. They would talk about the hotel in the town. They would talk about the concerts that used to happen in the fire hall. All just ordinary stories uh, about what the town was like before the war. And in, you know, there are large collections of these memorial books. The New York Public Library has one. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has one. And I had stumbled across this one called Horbin Proskuriv. Uh, Horbin means destruction in Yiddish and is a term that's usually used to refer to the Holocaust, but can also refer to other destructions. And this Horbin Proskurov book had all of the attributes of a Holocaust memorial book. It talked about life before the war and what it was like, and then had a martyrology. Uh, I think it was about 30 pages uh, listing the names of all of the local townsfolk who had been killed. But the book was actually published in 1924 before the Holocaust and was about the pogroms of the Civil War. It wasn't about the Holocaust at all. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of memorial books of that nature that were written after the pogroms rather than after the Holocaust. Uh, so it struck me as an interesting way to, to, begin, um, to begin the book and to think about that town, Proskurov, that had endured really its own Holocaust in a way uh, in 1919. So you've already mentioned a couple of the sources that you use for this project, um, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about um, the source sets that allowed you to reconstruct the events surrounding some of these pogroms. Yeah, so some of them are things like the memorial books, um, which are recordings of towns and recordings of what happened in the town, uh, chronicles of the pogroms uh, that were written by survivors afterwards. There's also a fairly large memoir literature uh, about the pogroms, but the most important historical source that I used were witness testimonies. And there's multiple sets of witness testimonies that we have, and it's great because you can compare them and see how, um, how narratives are changing over time. But the first set was taken in the immediate aftermath of a pogrom. So literally in the days, sometimes even the hours after a pogrom, where local do-gooders would go around and write up reports or would interview people who had witnessed the pogroms, who had just had their house invaded and perhaps a member of the household killed. And they would take testimonies 
and send those testimonies to a central committee that was compiling testimonies of pogroms in the hopes of one day prosecuting the perpetrators. So in the immediate aftermath, we have hundreds, if not, well, thousands, really, of these testimonies of people talking about their experience. Uh, So that's one wave. Um, In addition to that wave, there were also professional lawyers who went around investigating pogroms to compile formal reports. And their investigations produced um, produced witness statements as well. So that's another round of witness statements, usually about a month or so after the pogrom. Uh, the lawyers would come in and they would start to take the witness testimonies. Then, in after the Bolsheviks took control, they conducted revolutionary tribunals to prosecute pogrom perpetrators. And those tribunals took testimonies and people sent testimonies to the revolutionary tribunal. So we have a whole nother round of testimonies that were taken by the Soviets. And then in 1926, uh, there was a trial of Sholem Schwarzbart, who had assassinated Semyon Petlura, uh, who was the leader of the Ukrainian national movement. And during that trial, uh, there was a lot of discussion about the pogroms because Schwarzbart used the pogroms as a defense. And a whole new round of testimonies was then taken in 1926. Uh, so we have those major sets of testimonies. There's others as well. Uh, there were aid committees, most prominently the JDC, the Joint Distribution Committee, uh, which had offices in Warsaw. And a lot of pogrom refugees came to Warsaw and there gave testimonies as well to the JDC. And in some cases, we have multiple testimonies by the same person uh, who gave testimonies in the immediate aftermath of the pogroms in their hometown, and then subsequently migrated to Warsaw, for instance, and gave testimonies to the JDC or to the Red Cross in Warsaw. So there's thousands of pages of testimonies, most of which are in Russian, some of which are in Yiddish. uh, And that's really the main source that I used. And did you ever come across any Holocaust testimonies that talked about these earlier events as well? Uh, yeah, so there's a few. Uh, and those were mostly in the, well, there's a, there's a few different types of Holocaust testimonies I could talk about. So one are oral histories. And the Shoah, the Shoah Foundation at the University of Southern California has, what, 50,000, I think 52,000 even oral history testimonies in total of the Holocaust. Uh, many of them were taken in Ukraine. And some of those that were taken in Ukraine talk about the pogroms as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. These are just life stories of survivors of the Holocaust. They focus on the experiences of the Holocaust, um, but a lot of them do mention the pogroms, just like the interviews that I was doing with the AHAME project mentioned the pogroms uh, as part of their life narrative. So we can get testimonies from that. Uh, There are also Holocaust memoirs that have been written that talk about the pogroms as a part of their early childhood. Uh, And then there are trial records of uh, Holocaust perpetrators. And a very few of those mention pogroms as well, or the pogroms come up uh, in these trial records. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. So um, I'd like to turn now uh, to, and I realize that this may be an impossibly broad question, uh, but I was wondering if you could discuss how geopolitical events in Europe and Ukraine in particular affected the safety of Ukraine's Jewish communities. So in other words, what's the backdrop to the anti-Jewish violence that you're chronicling in this book? 
Yeah, well, you know, the title that I gave of the book in the midst of civilized Europe is, you know, obviously partially ironic, uh, but also refers to a quote uh, that talks about um, a quote by Anatole France that says, in the very midst of civilized Europe, uh, and he talks about there was a dawn of a new era taking place. And I think that's a feeling that a lot of Jews really had right before the pogrom started, was that there was a feeling that this was a dawn of a new era. There were major empires that were collapsing. The Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed in November 1918. Before that, the Russian Empire had collapsed in 1917. Uh, There were major reconfigurations taking place in Eastern Europe, and Ukraine was right at the center of it. Uh, So this is, you know, I think that's the main political climate is one of state collapse. Mm -hmm. when the Tsarist Empire collapses, which is you know really hated by the Jews, the Tsars were uh, you know confined the Jews to the pale of Jewish settlement, and the Tsar had a terrible reputation among the Jews for having allowed previous rounds of pogroms. Uh, even though we now know that Tsar wasn't entirely to blame and the government wasn't entirely to blame for those pogroms, um, but nevertheless, <clears throat> the Tsar imposed a whole series of restrictions uh, on the Jews. And during the First World War, the Russian imperial army also committed atrocities against Jews. So most Jews living under a Tsarist rule were very happy to see the Russian Empire collapse. And the provisional government that was established in its place immediately removed all legal restrictions on the Jews. So that period of February 1917 till November 1917 was really a period of great hope for the Jews of Russia um, and for the Jews of Ukraine. And in the midst of that period, there's also a Ukrainian national movement that emerges. And Jews rejoice in this Ukrainian national movement and become a real part of the Ukrainian national project. Uh, There are Jews who are serving in the Ukrainian government. Um, The Ukrainian government promises full autonomy for its Jewish population. And I think, you know, promises that for real not just the way subsequent governments were forced to give some concessions to the Jews as part of the minorities treaties. But in 1917, 1918, the Ukrainian socialist intellectuals who were trying to build a multinational Ukrainian state really believed in that and really wanted to incorporate the Jews. And the Jews were very happy to be incorporated. Uh, There was a Ministry of Jewish Affairs. They printed currency with uh, Yiddish writing on it. Uh, They declared Yiddish one of the official languages of Ukraine. Uh, It seemed like this was going to be a moment. uh, And they even allocated money for Yiddish schools out of the state budget. So it seemed to many Jews that this was going to be a moment of great hope. And they rejoiced at the Ukrainian independence, as did Jews around the world. Uh, It's only after the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, in November 1918, that Ukrainian pogroms um, begin, that the Ukrainian army begins to to target Jews, uh, and the whole thing goes awry. (laughs) So I think that's that's the political historical background for the most part. Great. Thank you. Uh, How about the role of the Bolsheviks? Uh, So one of the things that I 
thought about really a, a lot as reading as I was reading your book was Paul Hanebrink's A Spectre Haunting Europe, which is this intellectual history of the myth of Judeo-Bolshevism. And I kind of saw your book as more of a social history of Judeo-Bolshevism in a way. So can you talk about the importance of Judeo-Bolshevism as a catalyst for anti-Jewish violence and how, as you put it, the association between Jews and Bolsheviks became a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah. So first, I think Paul's book is a fantastic book and does make a lot of the same points um, that I'm making. Uh, I think Jochen Helbeck is also working on another book along these lines, looking at the role that the accusation of Judeo-Bolshevism played in World War II. So yeah, so what takes place during the pogroms that I'm talking about is the Ukrainian military, the Polish military as well, and the Russian military, all of them target the Jews on the accusation that the Jews are Bolsheviks. Now, I should add that the Bolsheviks also targeted the Jews at an early stage under the accusation that the Jews were capitalists and that Mm -hmm. the Jews were bourgeois capitalists. So the Jews are being targeted by all sides. But pretty quickly, the Bolsheviks, the Red Army, starts to crack down on anti-Jewish violence within its ranks. And the Bolsheviks become viewed as the saviors of the Jews for that reason. So on one hand, the Ukrainian military, the Polish military, and the Russian military, and the White Army are all attacking Jews on the charges that they are Bolsheviks. And this, in turn, incites more and more Jews to join the Red Army to defend themselves. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that the Jews who are, you know, non-politicized Jews who just happen to be living in some town in the, you know, wherever it may be, find that they're getting attacked by Ukrainians because they're being accused of being Bolsheviks. Then the Red Army comes in and it puts down this riot or the rebellion, whatever one wants to call it, and urges the Red Army when it comes in is looking for recruits. And so they'll hold a meeting in the center of town and they'll say to the Jews, we just saved you. Now, in return, you should join us. And a lot of Jews do join the Red Army for that reason, because for one, they want to take revenge against the people who killed their families, against the pogrom perpetrators who had killed their family. And for two, a lot of them do feel that the Red Army is going to be a defender of the Jews. Um, Members of the Red Army speak Yiddish. And as more and more Jews join them, more and more of them speak Yiddish. And this also becomes uh, a way of welcoming Jews into the Red Army. And yeah, so that's a vicious circle that's, uh, that induces more and more Jews to join the Red Army, thereby further perpetrating that uh, stereotype of uh, an equation, really, in the minds of many of Jews and Bolsheviks. So in the introduction, you describe the pogroms as public, participatory, and ritualized I was wondering if you could talk about who the perpetrators are of these pogroms, uh, what their potential relationship was to victims, and uh, maybe just a little bit about uh, how they generally developed. Yeah, so there's different styles of pogroms, and the word pogrom can be used to refer to any riots or acts of violence against the Jews. So it's used to refer to, you know, what we would maybe call a race riot uh, of the local population turning against Jews, but it's also used to refer to a military coming into town, carrying out an action, a military action against Jews. 
Um, but the classical pogrom, um, or the early pogroms anyway, are often begun by a military unit. And it's sometimes a military unit that has, we could say, gone rogue, or that's not acting under the authority of its commanders. Um, these are the Ukrainian military units that commit the first pogroms, uh, are not acting under the authority of the Ukrainian government, but they're commanders who have just chosen to take out their anger against the Jews. And they'll usually begin, once they begin targeting a few Jews and rounding up a few Jews who they suspect of being Bolsheviks, uh, the local population joins in and starts attacking the Jews, primarily for the purpose of loot. And it often starts with little children and women uh, who start raiding Jewish houses because they feel they have the least to lose and nobody's going to go after little children and women. And then more and more men join in and respectable members of society eventually join in. So the pogrom escalates and grows over time. And sometimes there's one pogrom in a town that's committed primarily by a military. And then a few weeks later, there's another pogrom in which ordinary townspeople join in. And we have cases, in fact, many cases, of it first taking place in the town and local townspeople raiding Jewish homes in search of loot. And then peasants from the neighboring countryside come in. And they come in with carts and with sacks with the intention of looting the Jewish homes and taking the loot back to them. It often begins with looting of Jewish stores. Um, most of the stores, or many of the stores in any case, in many towns were owned by Jews. So the dry goods stores, for instance, the pharmacies, um, the liquor stores, of course, tended to be owned by Jews. And local peasants would come in and they would ransack those stores also in order to get food and medical supplies for themselves, because this is a period of war and uh, there, you know, there isn't a lot of food going around. So there's a great deal of incentive to rob these, uh, to, to rob these stores. And then after robbing the stores in the center of town, the mass of people often gravitates out of the center of town towards the residential areas and then starts attacking Jews in their homes and robbing them of whatever they have in their homes. Uh, and there's widespread rumors that Jews are hoarding wealth, uh, that Jews have you know, material and money that they're hoarding in their houses, and so they're attacked for that reason as well. So what begins is a military action to put down, uh, to put down what the military believes is, in, is a Bolshevik revolt about to take place, then becomes a wider, uh, a wider mass riot and uh, looting. So you have several examples in the book of of places that experience multiple pogroms. Can you uh, tell us about maybe uh, one of the towns uh, that saw multiple waves of violence? Yeah, I mean, many of them, most of, most of the towns, in fact, saw multiple waves of violence. Uh, and it took place as successive armies would come into town, they would commit atrocities against the Jews. And... This happened along with the invasions of the town. So a town, for instance, could have the German army come in first and commit atrocities. Then the Ukrainian, the, the army of the Ukrainian People's Republic would come in and commit atrocities. They would be kicked out by the Bolsheviks who would then commit atrocities. Uh, then the Ukrainian army would come back in, 
kick out the Bolsheviks and commit more atrocities. And at each level, the atrocities are being committed primarily against the Jews. Um, but one example that I look at in great detail is the town of Zhitomir. And one of the earliest pogroms takes place in Zhitomir. And it's interesting because the first pogrom uh, is in January and the second pogrom is in March. So there's a two-month period in between them. And during the first pogrom, the violence is more limited and carried out predominantly by soldiers and directed against wealthy Jews and against Jews who could be identified as Bolsheviks or who they believe are Bolsheviks. And then the second wave of pogroms, the second one in March, is much more widespread. Uh, the fatality is about three times as high. The fatality rate is about three times as high uh, and is perpetrated by ordinary townspeople, by peasants from neighboring villages, and is perpetrated not just against wealthy Jews um, who are living in the bourgeois areas of town, but are committed against ordinary Jews wherever they may be living um, and are committed you know, the, at a much larger scale than the first round. And I think that just shows how violence escalates, that what had been unacceptable becomes acceptable. And people who would have been unwilling to participate in the first round of violence, upstanding citizens, or for that matter, peasants, uh, who would have been unwilling to participate in the first round of violence, once they see that violence has occurred, that their neighbors have gotten all of this loot from the Jews, and they didn't get it because they didn't participate, when the opportunity comes the next time, they say, we're not going to miss out on this, and they participate, and they use this opportunity to invade their Jewish neighbors' homes as well. And in many of these, there's also a real breach of trust that takes place mm -hmm. uh, because some of the people who know where the jewels are hidden are people who have been employed in the house. Uh, there's sometimes, you know, longtime friends or longtime employees or people who have people who they know intimately who know where the Jews live, know which Jews have jewels, which Jews have, you know, a lot of wealth. Uh, and so it's really intimate robbery. And after the pogroms take place and things settle down again, we have witness statements of people saying, yes, so-and-so stole my samovar, and it's there in his house. I can see it in his house. I can look through the window and see that it's my property there, and I want to get it back. So this is very intimate violence, so people know who did it. And that means that there's going to be intimate tit-for-tat as well. So years later, when the Bolsheviks and the Soviet government really does get power, there's the, the Jews know who the people are who stole from them, and they know who they want to get revenge against or justice against. Uh, so that also plays a, plays a role in it, this revolving, uh, revolving violence. And what about other types of Jewish response? So uh, is there a tendency to flee this violence? I mean, I imagine that there is, of course. And um, where do these refugees go? Um, yeah, so there's a few types of response. Uh, one is self-defense, and Jews establish self-defense units. Those quickly prove to not be all that useful um, because they can be overwhelmed pretty quickly by military, by real military units. And the Jews discover that once they take up arms, they're more likely to get killed quickly. Uh, so this is a, it's a really a hotly debated topic, the extent to which they should be engaging in self-defense. But a lot of people at the time decide that the sight of Jews carrying weapons is enough to really 
uh, bring about a massacre. So they decide often that they are better off uh, without self-defense. The other means of protecting oneself from a pogrom is fleeing. And displacement is a major after effect of the pogroms. Uh, I can't remember the figure right now, but I think it's about 70% of Jews in Ukraine in the 1920s report that they're not living in the city that they were born in. And that's compared with about, I think it's maybe 20, 30% of Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Jews are displaced massively during the pogroms. And Jews move out of small towns and move into cities. Uh, So they may relocate from Slovichna, for instance, to Kiev, uh, or they move out of Ukraine, or they they go into the Soviet interior, and they'll migrate to St. Petersburg and Moscow, cities who have Jewish populations that explode uh, in the 1920s. And many of those people coming into those cities are fleeing pogroms in Ukraine. And then there's a large group of hundreds of thousands that flee outside of the Soviet Union as a whole and flee into Poland, Romania, Hungary, and Germany becomes the major gathering spot, particularly the city of Berlin becomes a major gathering spot of Jewish refugees from pogroms. Uh, so those are some of the impacts that some or some of the uh, responses that Jews living in Ukraine have. I'll, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask about uh, the effects of having this large refugee wave come into other parts of Europe. Right. Yeah. So part of my argument towards the end of the book is that this wave of refugees also uh, has an impact on the rise of extremism in Europe and again, particularly in Germany. Uh, There's two major groups that are fleeing the Russian Revolution into Berlin. And one of those are Jews who are fleeing what they would call Ukrainian Cossacks, um, and they're fleeing the violence of the pogroms and ending up in Berlin. And at the same time, there's another large group of Ukrainians who are fleeing what many of them would characterize as Judeo-Bolshevism. They're fleeing Bolsheviks uh, into Berlin. And these groups land in the same neighborhoods uh, in Berlin, in Paris, uh, even in New York, Um, in Warsaw as well for a while, and in Romania. And these waves of Jewish refugees from Russia invoke fear among the local population. Fear, for one, that the refugees are bringing in disease and that they're they're poverty-stricken and that they're going to strain social resources in the host country. But fear also that the Jews are importing Bolshevism. And this becomes a major component in the rise of right-wing politics in Germany and in the rise of Nazism in Germany, is the accusation that these Jewish refugees are importing Bolshevism and importing revolutionary uh, movements into Germany. Uh, We also have it in the United States. We have a Red Scare in the United States. This is the time that Henry Ford is writing his International Jew that deals a lot with pogrom victims and with the Jews who are coming out of who he thinks are importing Bolshevism into the United States. And that plays a role in the National Origins Act of 1924 and the restrictions on immigration that the United States starts to impose um, because of this fear of Jewish migrants bringing poverty and bringing bringing Bolshevism. Really, all of the receiving countries, Romania, uh, Poland, Germany, the United States, Argentina even, all issue restrictions on immigration about 1923, 1924 
in response to this wave of migrants. Uh, so it has a global impact as well, uh, the wave of, re- of Jewish refugees. So you talk about kind of these rival refugee groups, and it comes to a head in the Schwarzbard trial, which you have a chapter about later on in the book. Now, you've already mentioned the trial, um, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about uh, its significance for the reckoning of wartime anti-Jewish violence and in in terms of trying to establish uh, culpability. Yeah. So there are stories of Jews and Ukrainians not getting along and Jews and Ukrainians fighting um, individually uh, in Berlin and Paris before the Schwarzbard. Uh, affair and the Schwarzbard affair is the is Sholem Schwarzbard, who was a uh, a Yiddish poet and political activist of types, assassinated Simon Petlura in Paris uh, because he believed that Petlura was responsible for the pogroms. And after that assassination, there was a big trial of Schwarzbard, in which Schwarzbard was eventually acquitted um, by uh, acquitted by the French court. And that trial really brought about a irrevocable breach between Jews and Ukrainians worldwide. Whereas previously, Jews still, you know, despite the pogroms, world Jewry still had a lot of sympathy for the Ukrainian nationalist movement. Uh, There was a perception, it wasn't an entirely correct perception, but there was a perception that it was the Poles who had perpetrated the pogroms and the Ukrainians had actually offered Jews uh, autonomy and national rights. That's not entirely correct, but that was the general impression that was uh, that was promoted um, around the world. And after the Schwarzbard trial, the two communities became really divided, whereas one group came to Petlura's defense and the other group came to Schwarzbard's defense. And the Jews who came to Schwarzbard's defense adopted this narrative that the pogroms had been perpetrated by the Ukrainian state and that Pitlura was responsible for the pogroms and uh, that, that Ukrainians as a whole were responsible for the pogroms. Whereas on the other side, there was a narrative that emerged among Ukrainians that Schwarzbard was, uh, was a Soviet agent and that the Bolsheviks and the Jews were in league with each other and had killed their hero, Petlura, um, as part of the Soviet plot. And it's ironic, actually, because Petlura wasn't liked all that much among Ukrainians until he was killed uh, because he had made a deal with Poland. And so he was a controversial figure within Ukraine. Um, once he was killed, he became a martyr and united Ukrainians around him. So that murder, which was really high-profile murder and trial, uh, exacerbated differences between the communities and really made them irreconcilable uh, for the immediate future. Right. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to talk now a little bit about the period between uh, the sort of end of of violence in the in the early twenties and um, and nineteen forty one. So what is the situation of Jews in Ukraine during the interwar period? Yeah, so Jews are quite Jews become integrated into the Soviet state in the interwar period. Uh, Jews start to acquire they they become upwardly mobile. Um, in fact, more upwardly mobile than other populations in Ukraine. Uh, they move into the, they start to get jobs in the Soviet apparatus. 
Um, they start to get jobs most notably in the Soviet secret police and become closely associated with the Soviet secret police, uh, but also with Soviet civil administration. Uh, and this is because Jews gravitate towards white collar jobs and they feel a loyalty to the Soviet state for having saved them from the pogroms and for prosecuting pogrom perpetrators. Uh, in the you know in the early 1920s, there's a campaign against counter-revolutionaries and against bandits, so-called bandits, and many Jewish victims of pogroms use that as an opportunity to prosecute the people that they regard as responsible for the pogroms. And that's mostly Ukrainian peasants. So from the Jewish perspective, they're carrying out justice. They are collecting testimonies about what happened during the pogroms, and they're finding you know, the Ukrainian perpetrators and prosecuting them. And much of the prosecution meant death, uh, meant killing them by uh, uh, having them sentenced to death by revolutionary tribunals. From the Ukrainian perspective, on the other hand, this looked like the Jews coming after their own people and killing their own people. The Soviet Jews killing their own people was the way that the Ukrainians viewed it. And so this further aggravates uh, tensions between the two communities. Uh, there's, you know, the period between the war uh, or between the wars and the Stalinist period also brings about all types of difficulties in Ukraine and difficulties for Jews and Ukrainians, uh, most notably, of course, the famine. And the famine is its own atrocity. Uh, Jews suffer during the famine as well, but not nearly on the level of Ukrainians, uh, primarily because the famine is focused in the rural areas and the cities, although also starving, have a little bit more opportunity to get food. So although Jews die during the famine, they're not dying at the same level as Ukrainians. And that brings about a narrative that while a narrative among many Ukrainians that while we were dying, the Jews had food. And also a narrative emerges in which the Jews are actually blamed for the famine um, because of Jewish presence in the Soviet administrative apparatus, uh, which is largely responsible for the famine. So this further aggravates relations between the two communities. Uh, all of this is sustainable in the interwar period. It's only when the Germans come in that they reignite these tensions, and very deliberately uh, so. They, they know, the Germans know the history of this relation, and they very deliberately try to rouse up Ukrainian anger against the Jews by trying to remind Ukrainians of the alleged responsibility of Jews for the atrocities that had been committed against Ukrainians during, during the interwar period. So another thing that you talked about briefly uh, during the interwar period were some um, experiments with agrarian Jewish communities in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah. So there are also attempts to settle Jews on the land in Ukraine. Uh, this had been going on from the Tsarist period as well. But the Soviets made a real effort in the 1920s to establish Jewish agricultural communes. Um, mostly in Crimea, actually, but also in southern Ukraine. And one of the narratives that had emerged during the pogroms among Ukrainians was that the Jews are trying to steal our land and turn our churches into synagogues uh, or something like that. And in the 1920s, 
In some cases, that's what it looks like happens. The Soviet government does go into those towns and does close the churches, doesn't turn them into synagogues by any means, but does close the churches. Uh, so, And uh, land is appropriated and given to Jews. And some of those Jewish colonies were funded by the agro joints and by, uh, uh, um, by American organizations, American aid organizations that gave money to help fund these Jewish agricultural settlements in South Ukraine and, uh, and Crimea. And that creates a resentment as well, because it looks like the Jews are stealing the land. And the Jews also get this imported money from America that allows them to buy tractors, that allows them to buy fertilizer and to import uh, and to develop new agricultural techniques. So their colonies start to do pretty well compared to the neighboring Ukrainian farms. And that also creates a resentment. All right, I'd like to turn now to talk about the central argument of the book and this connection between the earlier pogroms and uh, and the Shoah, the Holocaust. So um, you have a line in the introduction, I had always thought that the Holocaust was simply inconceivable before it happened, that it was beyond the ability of humans to imagine, to predict, or prepare for. And that really reminded me of the climactic scene of Jan Kadar's The Shop on Main Street, where the senile Mrs. Lautman essentially can't comprehend the danger that she's in uh, while the uh, while there's a roundup of Jews going on in her town until she hears the word pogrom and then it like instantly becomes clear to her. So mm-hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about what you see as significant, like the most important parts of the connection between the pogrom, the pogroms and the and the Holocaust? Yeah. So, you know, I was struck by the way that the Holocaust is often presented to audiences and to, to the general public, which is that Hitler came to power and started the Holocaust. And I think I used the example of there's a Holocaust memorial center near where I live in Farmington Hills, Michigan. And they have a big open room where you see all types of displays of what Jewish life was like before the room, before the war. And it's an airy room with lots of space and models of synagogues and pictures of families and what have you. And then you turn a corner and there's a long hallway leading down with a big picture of Hitler. And it gives the impression that everything was was all fine, was hunky-dory, until suddenly Hitler came to power and everything changed on a dime. And in a way, that actually is a true story. In a way, that's one way of telling the story. But at the same time, it neglects the history of violence in the region that preceded the Holocaust. And when we realize that only 20 years before the Holocaust, that's not a very long period of time. I mean, we're 20 years from 9-11 right now. So that period of time, there had been this massive uprising against the Jews that left over 100,000 Jews dead. Uh, There had been towns in which Jews were rounded up, systematically robbed and killed uh, right in the center of town only 20 years before. So... I think that history plays a role in the Holocaust. The mass killings of the Holocaust, the first real mass killings of the Holocaust, only begin after the German invasion of the Soviet Union in this very same territory in which the pogroms were perpetrated. And so I think that there is a uh, the local population becomes accustomed to violence. The unimaginable became imaginable. And 
that's hard to actually think about. But it, my my argument is that it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to commit these atrocities out of to commit the the uh, Holocaust atrocities out of nowhere. But there was already a tradition of killing Jews in these towns. People already knew this is what happens when a new army comes into town. The Jews get killed. And it broke a barrier between the unimaginable and the imaginable. And in fact, I have a headline that I used from September, and it's just one of many, many headlines I could use, but from September 1919 in the New York Times uh, that says... uh, Reports on 127,000 Jews have been killed in Poland and Ukraine, 6 million more in peril. And the article ends saying, if unless action is taken immediately, 6 million Jews in Ukraine and Poland are going to be slated for extermination. And there's many, many other examples of that type of language being used in the 1920s and into the 1930s, saying that these pogroms showed us that it is possible to exterminate, physically exterminate, all of the Jews in Ukraine and Poland. And there are many people saying that this is going to happen. And I think, you know, to avoid being teleological, we've discounted all of those warnings Mm -hmm. and said, oh, they were just, you know, you can't really pay attention to that. But when you do pay attention, you see that they predicted this. They knew it was going to happen. Um, and many people and many leading intellectuals were commonly talking about the coming extermination of the Jews of Europe. Uh, and it was the pogroms that showed them that it was possible. It's amazing, too, if you were to compare it to other uh, the way that historiographies of other genocides are written. So you've got the Armenian massacres in the 1890s as yeah. a precursor to the World War I genocide. You've got uh, Rwandan Genocide has these precursors that that historians often talk about as well. Uh, the Bosnian ethnic cleansings and genocide, people often refer to the uh, actions that were taken in World War II. So it's, it's really interesting that the Holocaust doesn't have that prehistory, but you're, you're really providing it for people in this book. Yeah, well, it's funny that you say that because I had a whole segment at one point in the book manuscript that talked about that and that made comparisons with other genocides, um, pointing out that most genocides have a pre-genocide, uh, just like what you were saying, and that often that pre-genocide is about 20 years before the actual genocide. Uh, that's generally the time period because it's when young people, people who were, uh, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 20 years later, they're 30, 35, and they're in charge, and they're the local police who are actually perpetrating the genocide. So they saw as children what their parents did, and when they grow up, you know, they participate in similar types of genocides. Uh, so I think that 20-year time frame is pretty, is pretty important. Um, but I took that out. I'm not sure why. I took it out, I think, because it's, <laughs> it's a little complicated and brings in a whole other dimension, and I didn't... You know, I didn't feel that I had the real expertise to make that type of comparative genocide argument, uh, I but I but I still think that it's uh, it's an interesting point. Yeah, so we're running short on time here, um, but I would like to ask you a couple of questions before we wrap up. Uh, first of all, I was wondering if you had some um, books in Ukrainian or East European studies that you might recommend to listeners of the New Books Network. Um, yeah, I guess I'll mention uh, Wendy Lauer's uh, book, The Ravine, 
Mm -hmm. uh, which is a fantastic book, as is everything that uh, Wendy does. Um, but it's a book that takes a look at one photograph of a killing in process that took place in the town of Miropol. And she tries to trace the origins of the photograph and to find out exactly what happened in that killing. And it's a you know fantastic, really micro history of an individual uh, of an individual killing. Uh, and I think you know we need to think of the Holocaust in this period, particularly the Holocaust by bullets, as a, as a series of individual killings. Is an interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, so I think that's a fantastic book. Um, you know, uh, the Menachem Kaiser's plunder. Uh, which is about his attempts to reclaim an apartment that his grandfather owned in Poland. Uh, I also thought it was a wonderful book. Um, Natan Meir's Stepchildren of the Shtetl, uh, about the uh, outcasts in Eastern Europe, about Jewish outcasts in Eastern Europe. Uh, another really interesting book to read. Um, but yeah, I could go on and on. <laughs> sure. And um, how about for yourself? Uh, what projects are you currently working on? Um, yeah, I've started a new project uh, looking at the migration of Jews to America and specifically about a proposal that began in 1907 to 1914 to redirect Jewish migration from New York to the port of Galveston and mm -hmm. to resettle Jews west of the Mississippi. And this was a collaborative project by people in the United States, people in Great Britain, and people in Russia, uh, who, again, saw an immediate danger to Russian Jews and wanted to save as many Russian Jews as possible, and were looking for any place in the world to settle Russian Jews, and decided that the American West uh, would be the most open, most democratic place uh, to settle them. So they embarked upon this venture to to rescue Russian Jews by settling them west of the Mississippi. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for speaking with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice talking to you. The book is In the Midst of Civilized Europe, The Pogroms of 1918 to 1921 and the Onset of the Holocaust, published by Metropolitan Books, out in October 1920. Oh, sorry, October 2021. <laughs> so this has been the New Books Network in Eastern European Studies, and I'm Leslie Waters. Until next time.